Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Hey peeps, welcome back. We've run the gamut here in our deep dive of the Washington family, and I hope you've been enjoying yourself. If you haven't already, go check out the prior episodes on Washington, especially George Part 1, since this episode is really dedicated to his presidency and all the history he made in the process as the first one to fill the role. There are many things we see in the modern presidency that we take for granted, or rather treat as fairly normal. Cabinet meetings, State of the Union, inaugural addresses, all things that, while commonplace today, all started with the first president. There was no manual when Washington took office, and so he had to figure out a lot of the job on the fly. No pressure. So this week, I'm diving into the first presidency, George Washington's administration. Grab your cup of coffee, peeps. Let's do this. The last time we talked about George, I stopped with his resignation from the Continental Army. As you know, if you've been listening to the pod, you're aware that George was also covered when I discussed the Constitutional Convention. As a brief recap, Washington initially resigned his commission with the intention of returning to private life. As someone who was very weary of his life expectancy, he felt that at 51, he wasn't going to last much longer. And as someone who was also very worried about his reputation, what better way to retire from the public spotlight than as the man who brought freedom and independence to the new republic? So when Madison came a-knocking, asking George to participate in the upcoming convention to retool the Articles of Confederation, Washington was understandably hesitant. What if he showed up and the push for a more centralized government failed? Adding to the pressure was the fact that he knew his attendance would be seen as adding a certain level of prestige, further risking his reputation. Luckily, the schemers won out and George was on site when the new constitution was written, elected as the president of the convention. As the delegates were debating the office and power of the executive, there was an unstated understanding that Washington would be the one to fill the role, whatever it came to look like should they be successful in repealing the Articles and ratifying the Constitution. It was this faith, in part, that helped the delegates push forward with vesting the amount of power in the executive found in the Constitution. They all trusted Washington would do the right thing and not abuse any powers given to him. And we know, of course, that the Constitution was successfully ratified in 1788, and therefore it was time to choose the first president of the newly United States. The first presidential election occurred on February 2, 1789. A total of 69 electors met to cast two ballots. To the surprise of absolutely no one, Washington was unanimously elected. A lot of this episode, to me, is so fascinating when you compare it to the political climate of the last 40 or 50 years or so. Can you imagine any president winning all of the electoral votes? In 2020, there was 538. I can't picture that. Washington was notified about his victory on April 14, 1789 at Mount Vernon. While the election was not exactly a surprise, 
Washington still needed to prepare himself for a daunting task, being the very first president of the United States. And he was acutely aware that every step he took would be held for posterity, writing, quote, There is scarcely any part of my conduct which may not hereafter be drawn into precedent, end quote. Ready or not, he made the journey north, and shortly after 2 p.m. on April 30th, George Washington, standing on the second floor of the Federal Hall in New York City, took the first presidential oath of office. At the end of the stated oath, Washington ad-libbed, so help me God. And with that, the first of many precedents were set. Another first set by Washington was the idea of an inaugural address. There is nothing in the Constitution mandating a speech to the people when a president is sworn into office, but George took the opportunity to set the tone of his presidency. The original speech was a terrifying 73 pages long and was filled with a lot of George trying to prove to the general public he had not actively sought the position. Can you imagine sitting through that? Luckily, better heads prevailed and good old James Madison swung into action. Madison tossed Washington's original draft, written mainly by John Humphreys, and wrote his own, much more circumspect version. And in a weird twist of irony, Madison was also tapped by Congress to draft their official response to Washington's address, and again one more time by Washington to respond to Congress's response. So confusing and awkward. After his inaugural address, Washington led a procession to a church service, and then it was time to get to work. But what exactly did that mean? While it may be hard to picture, try to place yourself in Washington's shoes. He was just elected to a position that had never existed before, and as you may remember from the episode on the Constitution, there were very little in terms of specifics for how to be a president. When should he start work? What were his day-to-day duties? How much interaction should he have with the public? How many terms should he serve? How should people address him? Yes, even the question of how to address Washington was a hot debate, with Congress spending a week arguing over various monikers, His Excellency, King, and so on, before ultimately deciding on President of the United States. Washington was sure to stay out of that debate, not wanting to appear vain or too full of himself. I think no one was more aware of the immense responsibility placed on their shoulders than the man himself. Washington wanted to ensure everything he did was completely above board and would not be viewed in any negative light. Now, partially this is because he was infinitely worried about his reputation, but he also cared about the success of the country, and he knew that a lot was riding on his triumph or failure as president. And far from the expansive bureaucracy it is today, at the start, the federal government was actually quite small. During the first presidential term, Washington had eight clerks working for him and commanded an army of 200 men. The federal budget? A staggering $2 million. Pause for laughter. As there was no established presidential protocols, Washington relied heavily on the text of the Constitution and his understanding of it. Included in the Constitution was basic parameters that the Senate should provide advice and consent on foreign policy and treaties. Shortly after he was inaugurated, Washington was tasked with his first conundrum, negotiating new treaties with the indigenous tribes. Trying to follow the rules as he understood them, 
Washington requested a meeting with the Senate and sent over both a prepared list of questions he wanted to discuss ahead of time and supporting documents to help the conversation, including previous treaties. However, when he arrived, the Senate seemed unprepared. They proposed adjourning to a later date so they could review the questions Washington submitted, ahead of time, mind you, and provide full answers. Washington, in a rare moment of expressed anger, left in a huff and swore he would never come back to the Senate again for advice. He remained true to his word. In desperate straits to get some viewpoints and guidance on the powers and protocols of the presidency, Washington eventually looked toward the leaders of federal offices established at the time. The Secretary of War, Secretary of Treasury, Secretary of State, and Attorney General. These men, Henry Knox, Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, and John Jay, became an advisory panel that would lead to the development of what we today call the cabinet. The idea of a cabinet or some type of formal advice for the president was discussed during the Constitutional Convention. The delegates knew the new president would have a lot to handle and that occasionally he would need outside advice and input. Though they proposed and debated three types of councils, ultimately they omitted any specified cabinet-type body from the text of the Constitution. Washington, as president of the convention, was on hand during these debates and therefore was intimately familiar with the original intentions of the delegates. This knowledge, in part, also influenced his decision and actions surrounding the proper way to seek advice. George would seek various avenues, including conferring with the Supreme Court, before landing on hosting a meeting with the heads of the federal departments. He wouldn't call an official cabinet meeting until two years into his presidency, in November of 1791. And though they all served the president, each man had their own personality and viewpoints on how the new government should develop. This was the original team of rivals, to call out one of my favorite historians, Doris Kearns Goodwin. Jefferson and Hamilton in particular were very frosty and at opposite sides of most arguments. This part of the Broadway musical was accurate, although I highly doubt any of them did rap battles. The development of the cabinet, or a panel of presidential advisors, was one of the riskiest moments undertaken by the new commander-in-chief. The term cabinet was already known amongst Americans, and had a negative connotation that prompted Washington to be very careful in how he referred to the men he looked to for advice. Americans were familiar with and detested the British version, known as the Cabinet Council. This council was a select number of individuals from the Privy Council who held their meetings with the king in private and who were believed to wield a high amount of power and influence. Washington was so cautious about the blowback from the American public that he never used the term cabinet in his official writings while president. It wasn't until he retired from office and John Adams was president that Washington allowed himself to call a spade a spade and refer to the body of advisors as the cabinet. The cabinet, as an advisory body, started very slowly and emerged organically as a result of various foreign and domestic issues bubbling up to the surface. In fact, between the first cabinet meeting in 1791 and 1793, Washington only called nine meetings. One thing that set Washington apart from contemporary presidents was his exclusion of his vice president from the cabinet meetings. Now, there are two potential reasons for this. As vice president, John Adams was the president of another branch of government, the legislative, right? He's the president of the Senate. 
and therefore including him, could be seen as mixing the branches of government. The other reason, and one many historians point to, is the lack of familiar relationship and trust between Adams and Washington. They were not close and were kind of forced together based on how the Electoral College worked at the time. And you add to that Adams's history of being a little critical of Washington during his tenure as a general. And it's easy to imagine how someone as sensitive as Washington might decide to freeze Adams out. Washington's first term was primarily focused on establishing presidential protocols and addressing domestic policy. Everything from the president's social schedule to the appropriate relationships with the members of the legislature and judiciary had to be cultivated during his tenure. On the policy front, Washington's first term was dominated by the establishment of a national bank and figuring out a fiscal strategy for the new nation. This came in the form of Alexander Hamilton's push for the first bank of the United States and the assumption of debt. While Hamilton got what he wanted, it only served to further divide the cabinet, and eventually both he and Jefferson would resign during Washington's second term in office. Washington also oversaw the implementation of the first census conducted in 1790 and the passage of the first major tariff, an excise tax on distilled spirits. This tax would eventually lead to a bit of a nightmare for Washington known as the Whiskey Rebellion. We'll cover that in more detail in a future episode. At the close of his first term, Washington was getting pretty tired and ready to hang it all up. Having been in some form of public service for over 30 years and beginning to get maligned in the press, George was feeling a little underappreciated and had an eye towards retirement. But there was political acrimony brewing, and there was a fear that if Washington left after only one term, the country might fracture. Washington's secretaries, Hamilton, Jefferson, Jay, and Knox, pleaded with him to stick it out for one more term. Washington agreed, and he was again unanimously elected. His second term was much rougher than the first, filled with infighting, domestic strife, international quagmires, and saw the end of the original cabinet as each secretary resigned their post during Washington's final tenure in office. The animosity between Hamilton and Jefferson continued into the second term, with Jefferson adamantly opposing the National Bank, and Hamilton questioning Jefferson's loyalty to Washington. Their differences came to a head during the debate as to how the United States should respond to the declaration of war against Great Britain by France in early of 1793. Jefferson, a Francophile, felt strongly that the United States should come to the aid and defense of the French. The French, after all, played a pivotal role in the United States achieving independence from the crown. Hamilton, however, believed the future of the American economy rested in manufacturing and trading goods, which necessitated a cordial relationship with the British. Ultimately, Washington announced a stance of neutrality, which pleased no one and was criticized by the public. Washington's declaration of neutrality was also in and of itself a precedent-setting moment. By unilaterally declaring a stance of impartiality on a foreign matter, Washington asserted it was the office of the executive who held control over foreign policy. Congress followed up by passing the Neutrality Act in 1794, thereby confirming Washington's interpretation. Over his remaining time in office, Washington signed a few bills into law, including the regrettable Fugitive Slave Law of 1793, and was in office as Tennessee joined the Union. 
But by 1796, he was officially done. No one could talk him into staying for the sake of the country, even though there was a clear fracturing of political alliances and developing opposing parties. Additionally, at 64 years of age, Washington may have been concerned about dying while in office and creating a whole different precedent of a president serving until death. Working again with Hamilton, Washington crafted a farewell address to the country, announcing his retirement from the presidency. Published on September 19, 1796, in a Washington-friendly paper, the president printed his lengthy sermon on his decision to retire and his hopes for the country. Seeing the rising acrimony and political infighting, Washington pled with his fellow citizens to remember that, before anything else, they were Americans, writing, quote, The name American, which belongs to you in your national capacity, must always exalt the just pride of patriotism more than any appellation derived from local discriminations. With slight shades of difference, you have the same religion, manners, habits, and political principles. You have, in a common cause, fought and triumphed together. The independence and liberty you possess are the work of joint councils and joint efforts of common dangers, sufferings, and successes." And as with so much of his time in office, Washington set the bar of presidents stepping down after two terms in office, a legacy that would remain until Franklin Roosevelt ran for and won a third stint in 1940, prompting the 22nd Amendment setting term limits for presidents. With the election of John Adams as the second president of the United States, Washington retired to his farm on Mount Vernon in March 1797. And while he was pulled out of retirement when final time to help with organizing an army, he continued to tend to and care for his farm. On December 12, 1799, Washington went out to inspect the grounds during a winter storm and caught a terrible cold and a sore throat. Slowly suffocating to death, George Washington finally passed away on December 14th. He was 67. It is impossible to cover all of the accomplishments and significant firsts achieved by Washington in a single episode, but hopefully you got a glimpse into how monumental his tenure really was. He took a few paragraphs of parameters and turned them into a functioning, effective executive office. I think perhaps no one else was better suited for such a daunting task. Sensitive, emotionally intelligent, and ever aware of legacy, George Washington was instinctively prepared for the role. There are so many sources out there to help fill your Washington obsession, if that's your thing. If you like podcasts and want to dive more into the details of the presidency, I highly recommend checking out the presidencies of the United States. The host, Jerry, does over 30 episodes just on Washington. I've mentioned them in the past, so go check it out. As always, please consider rating and reviewing the podcast on either Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. I always appreciate your feedback. Thanks for hanging in there. Chat with you peeps next week. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. Mm -hmm.